you have a copy of God's Word there with you, I encourage you to join me in the book of Jeremiah. We continue our exposition of this prophet. This morning, considering Jeremiah 4 from verse 5 all the way through chapter 6, verse 30. And for those of you, again, having a panic attack, this is not going to be verse by verse. Jeremiah 4, verse 5 through 630. And we're going to just read some selected places here. So first, come with me to chapter 4 at verse 13. Jeremiah 4, 13. We'll read down to verse 27. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariot like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the mountains that he is, excuse me, warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth and behold it was without form and void. And to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Now come with me to chapter 5, verse 10. Jeremiah 5, 10. Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. 
no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind, the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. And come down to verse 30 of chapter 5. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? And then the sixth chapter at verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, that I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, Father, as you have promised, attend your word by the power of your spirit. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In his first inaugural address, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt admitted that the United States of America had lost its way. Quote, we don't know where we're going, he said, but we are on our way. Harvard scholar Oscar Handlin reached the same conclusion in 1996, looking back to the era, and this is what he said. At some point, midway into the 20th century, Europeans and Americans discovered they'd lost all sense of direction. Formerly, familiar markers along the way had guided their personal and social lives from birth to maturity to death. Now disoriented, they no longer trusted the guideposts and groped in bewilderment toward an unimagined destination. Wandering in the dark, men and women in all Western societies stumbled blindly, strained unavailingly for glimpses of recognizable landmarks. Wow. What? would they say? What would he write? What will historians assess? 50, 60, 75 years from now about our own era. Talk about not knowing where you're going. We define cluelessness as a society. We, we chuckle, but it's an uneasy chuckle. 
Because folks that are supposed to know don't seem to know. And oh my soul, we have degenerated to the point we are hesitant with a false quasi-humility to even define male and female. But my friends, of all people, Christians ought to have a sense of direction, of purpose, as we live in this troubled world. Jeremiah gives us insights that we ignore to our own hurt and peril. Now, my guess is that for many of us, Jeremiah has not been a favorite place to camp out. It's hard. And there's a lot of stuff about judgment. And it's got elements that seem repetitive. And we've got to bear in mind that Jeremiah is prophesying over a decades-long span. And so it does seem rather condensed in ways. And that's one of the reasons I'm taking the approach I am, where I'm taking, taking larger bites and spreading it out a bit to try to give you the feel the understanding of what it is Jeremiah does here. But my guess is there were probably a couple of familiar texts. Because preachers love to find little kernels of fun texts that are easy to preach, right? So in chapter 5, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction and my people love to have it. So I know there's been sermons on that. I've heard them. Or Jeremiah 6, 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We've heard those, no doubt. Or in chapter 6, verse 16, stand by the roads, look and ask for the ancient paths. But my friends, if we don't take those in context, I think we miss some essential understandings here. As Pastor Willis noted in the call to worship, our tendency is to look at sin and think, not a big deal. Our entire society shouts at us that it's not a big deal, unless it's the sins they are defining, right? It ain't a big deal till it bugs me, then it's a big deal. But the reality is there are dire consequences for unrepentant sin. Dire consequences. So as we look at these prophecies, again, we believe these are mostly, if not entirely, from the early time of Jeremiah's work when Josiah is king. As Josiah has tried to pull Judah back from the brink, has done, its best, done his best to cure them of idolatry and this wandering thought and heart. But even then, he points out in the fourth chapter what we could call the trauma of judgment. 
You look in that fourth chapter and you see at verse 5 these words, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble, let us go into the fortified cities, raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north. My friends, the sounding, the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn in Israel was alternately a call to worship and a call of triumph, but in this case it is a call of triumph of their enemies over them. It is the trumpet of God blowing for the Babylonians to come raining down on Judah from the north because of their wickedness. That which had been for them great comfort. Think of their stories, of their heritage, their history. Think of the story of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down at the blast of the trumpet. But now the blast of the trumpet is not their salvation. The blast of the trumpet is their judgment and their destruction. The fourth chapter contains only two metaphors. Prophets often use metaphors, but there's only two. The lion and the tornado. Yeah, we wouldn't call it a tornado, but I'll get to that in a moment. The picture at verse 7, making the land a waste. Do you see that? A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. You come down a little further and he talks about a hot wind. And then in verse 13, chariots like the whirlwind. You know, fear of a large predator like a lion is hardwired into us. I remember a few years ago watching the movie The Ghost and the Darkness. You know, folks, that's not good for this man to see things like that. Sleep is an issue to begin with, and adding the elements of dreamt lions is probably not smart. And then some years later, in traveling, getting to go to Chicago and go to the Field Museum, you actually got to see the stuffed replicas of those lions. There's something down inside of us that recognizes the fearsomeness of such a powerful predator. And then the hot wind, the sarako, the actual language. Think about how windy it is out there today, only think about it being not cold. And some of you would say, oh, please, let it be anything but cold, right? You got chilled this morning, you're not going to warm up till July. I know what you're t talking about, right? This is a hot wind in a dry environment, and it brings nothing but dust, inability to breathe, it is a miserable thing. One fellow wrote about it years ago, an oppressive desert wind, too dry to bring refreshment, too strong to separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, Sir Adam George, George Adam Smith described the approach, atmosphere thickening. At 145, the wind rises, 93 degrees. 230, a gale blowing. 
air filling with fine sand, horizon shortened to a mile, sun not visible, gray sky, but a slight shadow cast by the tents. The view from the tent door is of gray limestone land under a dark gray sky. And this is in the afternoon. Heat and wind. Think convection oven with sand to choke you. This is the prophecy. This trauma of judgment, the lion, the whirlwind, brings out in, in Jeremiah this agony. You can't read at verse 19 without feeling it down in your heart, right? My anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain on the walls of my heart. My heart's beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. He knows what's coming. His pain is razor sharp. But he will not be silent. Silver, I can ask the question, where are the Jeremiah's? of the evangelical church in these postmodern times. Where are the men and women who have such awe for the justice of God, such love for the church of Jesus Christ, such pity for the lost souls of the world that they weep over the sins of a nation? Christians spend a great deal of time wringing hands about the state of the church, bemoaning the ills of pagan society, and looking back with nostalgia for a Christian America that probably never existed but that is not lamentation. It's just feeling sorry for ourselves. Ow. My brothers and sisters, when we see the judgment of God approaching, we should not be flippant. We should not be faithless. It ought to, it ought to grip our hearts. The language that Jeremiah will go ahead to use in that fourth chapter you come down at verse uh, 23 and what a stunning imagery looked on the earth behold it was without form and void into the heavens they had no light do you see what he's doing he's talking about the judgment of god as decreation where creation comes to disorder and brings order the judgment of god comes to order and brings disorder where out of the creation act god brings fruitfulness and joyfulness and pleasantness and immensity of blessing. Now it is the destruction of all that he's put together. My friend, we know enough, if we know anything about biblical history, we know how this plays out when Babylon rains down destruction on Judah. I've often referenced this, the final son of David, the last to be on the throne, only lives to see his sons murdered in front of him before they blind him and take him off into captivity. This was the coming judgment. But oh my friend, hear me when I say this, this parallel you and I await a judgment to come, a judgment not merely on a single nation, but a judgment on this entire world 
where everything we see shall be dissolved with extraordinary heat by the powerful judgment of God. How dare we act as though that day will not come? Let us not be luck scoffers. For the day of the Lord comes like a thief, the heavens pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? But you see, the saddest thing as you consider the trauma of judgment is here is how Jeremiah describes Judah's response. Look at verse 30. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you're dressing scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Do you see what he's saying? You're getting painted up like you're going out on the town, and you ought to be getting ready for war and death. And you see, this trauma of judgment comes because of the testimony of their sins. That's what the fifth chapter is about, is their refusal to repent. You have some echoes of Abraham talking with the Lord before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in the first uh, five verses where Jeremiah is told, look in the streets of Jerusalem, run to and fro, search, see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth, and he couldn't find any. In fact, it is so bad that it is absolutely hopeless. Not only does that show up. Look at verse 4. I said, well, maybe it's only the poor. They don't have any sense. They don't know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. So I'll go to the great and speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They'd burst the bonds. All of them were living wickedly. There is none righteous, no, not one. He will describe the treacheries of their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. He talks to them about having believed lying prophets down at verse 12, they've spoken falsely of the Lord. They've said he'll do nothing. George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the first great awakening in America and England, said it this way, as God can send a nation of people no greater blessing than to give them faithful, sincere, upright ministers, so the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, carnal, lukewarm, unskillful guides. Wow. My friends, when I see ostensibly Christian ministers stand up and, and absolutely gut biblical ethics, biblical morality, I see that as part of the curse of God on a nation headed for destruction. In fact, here's how bad it is. Nobody believed they were doing anything wrong. 
Verse 19 of chapter 5. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things? We didn't do anything. I mean, there's really no such thing as sin. Why is everybody getting so worked up about this? Why is God upset? They belie their profession. They have no spiritual sense. In verses 20 and 21, they're stupid. They're without sense. Foolish, senseless people. Eyes that see not. Ears that hear not. In verse 22, they have no reverence for the power of God. In verse 23, they're stubborn. Verse 24, they're without gratitude. He's done all these things for them. From top to bottom, the society is riddled with false beliefs about God. He describes in verse 27, they're like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in the deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They don't defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things? My friend, when we look around us, the search for the righteous, the obvious idolatries, the lying prophets, the absolute inability to recognize that anybody's done anything wrong, the spiritual ignorance, the falsity. Richard Niebuhr described America in this way, in its liberal theology love fest that began in the 50s and 60s. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And that is still the mindset of so many in this day. The testimony of their sins in light of the trauma of judgment also leads finally to the sixth chapter, the testing of the refiner's fire. Now, chapter 6 is kind of a mingling. It takes up images of judgment, the blowing of trumpets, siege works raised, desolation, deportation. But it also shouts about their inadequate repentance. Look at verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone's greedy for unjust gain, from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they, alar- or, excuse me, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they're not at all ashamed. They do not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I'll punish them. They will be overthrown. There was no character stubbornness you look at verses 16 and following we will not walk in your way we will not pay attention we will reject your law continuing to be religious but having absolutely 
no heart. And they find themselves then under the fire of judgment. Look at how the sixth chapter ends. I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They're bronze and ironed, all of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire in vain. The refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver, they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. He has brought the fire judgment. This is what's coming on Judah. So, the trauma of judgment, the testimony of their sins, the testing of the fire, all of this shouting, that your sins matter in the sight of God. That God will not deal lightly with these things. It also shouts to us how essential it is that God rescue us as his people. The history of the people of God has been up to the point of Jesus Christ the history of failure after failure after failure. Right? That's why it's always dangerous. I hear people say, well, you need to learn about the character of Abraham and the character of David. Learn from their character and be like them. Let me give you a hint, children. Don't be like any of them. You want to be like, be like Jesus. And know that you botch that regularly. You and I need a deliverer. We need the promises of the new covenant. We need God to come rescue us, change us internally so that we can obey. God has to do that. I know some of you sitting there, preacher, this is real dark. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 kind of put me off my feet. I don't even know if I'm going to eat lunch today. Maybe I ought to go fast. I know you haven't gone that far, but... Can I, can I point out a little glimmer here? This struck me going through the text. Look at chapter 4 at verse 27. There's a phrase. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolation, yet I will not make a full end. You see that phrase? All right. Chapter 5. Verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Hmm. Chapter 5, verse 18, but even in those days declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. I got to tell you, folks, whenever the message is judgment, 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 doom, 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 anything that sounds the least bit like hope, you ought to get a hold of as fast as you possibly can. Not make a full end. What is it that God has promised to do here? It's the promise of a remnant that survives. Here's the hope for the refugees. With all of the judgment, there's also salvation. 
I'm reminded of Habakkuk, the third chapter, verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then this phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Christian, hear this. Jeremiah searches all Jerusalem looking for a righteous man, can't find one. One that did justice and loved righteousness. But there was one who would come, who not only loved justice and righteousness, but was justice and righteousness living. There is one who received the judgment that should have fallen on us for the sake of the glory and righteousness of his Father. There is one who did what Israel never could do and what you and I could never have attained. He satisfies the righteous requirement of God Almighty and he brings salvation to his people. You and I are called in the midst of this mess to be salt and light. Salt because the culture is rotting. Light because the culture is absolute darkness. And my friends, please hear me when I say this. It's not going to get lighter without the mercy of God. Christian, here be your calling. If anybody takes sin seriously, it ought to be you. <laughs> because you know the price paid. And that glorious rescue ought to move you to holiness. Oh, my brothers and sisters, yes, we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the gospel is extranos, it is outside of us. We are saved by the act of another. That is our only hope. But having that hope, we then live as those so redeemed, as those so greatly loved as those who have been justified. We will live as those who are being sanctified. May the Lord grant it. My friend, if you don't know, here is my joyful call to you. As the ambassador of Jesus Christ, I say to you, don't run from him, run to him. Run to him as fast and hard as you can. Repent of your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. We come to the end. In a moment, we're going to sing. Now, what we sing is our song of response. This is us responding to the word we've just heard. 
We don't do a formal invitation like a lot of churches do. I've been concerned over the years that if we're not careful, we're going to start teaching people salvation by geography. You get up here, you get saved. Can't anything happen back there. I've just got a sneaking suspicion the Lord is present. You call on him, he'll hear you. Amen? But friend, if you need help, your questions, you don't know what's going on, you need spiritual guidance, certainly myself, Pastor Willis, Pastor Nathan, you look around, there's somebody around here that can tell you how to get to Jesus, and if they're not sure what to do with you, they'll bring you to one of us, and we'll help. But friend, let me make this abundantly clear. You don't need us to get to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you now would take this, your word, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. We ask, Father, humbly, Lord, if, if there's some here that don't know Christ who are not Christian, that you would bring them to saving faith. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, may we rejoice in your good grace to us. And may we live lives that demonstrate our confidence and joy that we have been rescued from wrath to come and made heirs of a kingdom that will last forever. Oh Lord, help us be salt and light in this corrupt, darkened world. Lord, lift our eyes, lift our hearts. May we rejoice to know all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray now. Amen. Let's